pretend there's a lot of successful things going on in the Christian uh, culture today. You know, we have movies, we have ministries, we have churches who are being more aggressive, more contemporary, more engaging. We have more Christian conferences, more Christian seminars, more leadership seminars, more evangelism seminars. We have better and greater Christian music. We have more Christian TV, more Christian radio. But we're losing ground. When you really think about our audience, the unconvinced, they don't know anything about most of that. Well, I guess there was a movie called Passion of the Christ, or I guess there was some Christian movie. But for the most part, it's a subculture. We are heading into, as a society, a situation where the way we do church today serves a lot of people, there's a lot of fruit. But there's a growing segment of our society that will never really be comfortable in what we have to offer. And so a lot of people are enjoying their subculture, and we've got a lot of stuff for ourselves, and maybe a few people stumble into it. But the bulk of the world is in the darkness. The bulk of the world, is in, in America even, is an unreached people group. And so we'll send money for missionaries to go to unreached people group, and every day, Monday through Friday, we're in an unreached people group. We're sending our check off, or we're talking about, hey, there's a board at church that shows all the unreached people groups. We step over people that we have uh, related to for years, and go to people we've never laid eyes on before. Our friends in our environment, they're not going to the Christian conference. They're not going to church. 99% of the population are never going to step into church. You are the missionary that Jesus has sent, that God has sent, to the most unreached people group. And so rather than say, hey, come to our subculture, you're going to love it. How about instead we become the light to the darkness and say, let me bring to this environment what real integrity looks like what real humility looks like. That's the stuff that's attractive to people. It's always been an interesting dilemma that the longer a person is a follower of Christ, the more isolated they become from people who don't yet know Christ. The more ineffective they become at discussing and dialoguing with those who are yet unconvinced. And today Jesus is going to address that very issue with his disciples. His disciples have also grown up in a culture that was highly religious, studying of the Torah together. But as they studied it together, they were taught that those who lived across the sea were unconvinced and of a different religion and of a different practice and that they should isolate themselves from them. What we're going to discover today is that the goal is to get us out of the boat, not to get other people in. You'll see as the passage develops what that means. That God's goal is to get us out of the boat, out of our bubble, not to get other people into the bubble with us. We're going to look at three slogans that sort of develop in this passage in Mark chapter 5 today. As we do that, I want to remind you a little bit, because this passage speaks directly to the heart and the spinal cord and the backbone of our church. I address this a lot, but let me remind you a little bit about what our church is about. It's about helping people on their spiritual journey. This is called a spiritual continuum. It's a tool we use. We did a survey several years ago, and we found that 17% of those attending Horizon said that they are believe in God, but they are not sure about Christ. Their faith is not a significant portion of their life. But even within that, you see there's many stages to that journey. Some people have a possible awareness of God, but not the gospel yet. Some people begin to have a positive attitude toward a messenger of the gospel. Long before they know what the Bible says or what God is or what Jesus claimed, they're going to come face to face with you, a messenger of the gospel. And they're going to decide whether or not they like you enough to investigate what it is you say you believe. 
in the context of that conversation, you're going to share your story. And they're going to start having a positive attitude toward the benefits. They don't believe it yet. They don't even know exactly what it is. But they like the benefits they see and how you talk about the strength that you had during, during cancer. You talk about the comfort God brings to you during challenging times. You talk about the way in which God has allowed your marriage to be better or has impacted your parenting. They begin to see the benefits long before they see the message. And eventually they begin to have a positive attitude toward the message. Wow, that makes sense. Wow, that's true. Then they accept Christ as their forgiver and leader. And that's not the end of the journey. That's the beginning of a journey of growth, connection to the body, awareness of the essentials, a transformed life of the spirit, a stewardship of their time, biblical competence, worship, and then ultimately multiplication where you invest back in people who are a few steps uh, below where you were or a few steps back in their journey. 36% of those attending Horizon said that they were Christ followers, but at a very entry level. I believe in Jesus and I'm working on what it means to get to know him. 35% said they feel really close to Christ and depend on him daily. And 22% said that my relationship with Jesus is the most important thing that guides everything I do. But I only had one more dimension to this before we jump into the passage. Often it's not a linear horizontal process. It's actually both horizontal and it's emotional. In fact, you may have a friend who has a possible awareness of God, but one of them is persecuting Christians with their jokes, with their comments. Another one isn't persecuting, but definitely hostile to the idea. Somebody else just rejects it, but they're at least not hostile. So you may build relationships for weeks, months, or even years, and it seems like they're not moving up the scale because they're not, but they are moving along the way. They move from being hostile to being suspicious. That's progress. And you may be the one that for years moves somebody from hostile to suspicious to then after enough time of watching your life, seeing that it's authentic and seeing it's real, they move to the place that they have interest. Now they have interest and then they have sympathy and they begin to move up a step to start having a positive attitude toward the messenger. And you now have the opportunity to begin to share your story. But we play the long game here. We invest over time. We're not rushing because we want to cooperate with what the Spirit is doing in someone's life. We want to partner with His work in their life. So I'll show you four types of people, and then we'll jump into Mark. Within the unconvinced, those who don't yet know Christ, there's a lot of different types of people. Some are hostile, and some are skeptical. And God may be using you with some colleague or some friend or some relative to just move them from hostile to skeptical. And that's progress, one step at a time. Some are skeptical, but they begin to watch your life and they become unconvinced. I'm not sure it's true, but tell me more. Others didn't grow up hostile to the gospel. They just were unaware. They thought being born in America meant they were a Christian. They thought God brought everybody to heaven. They thought that the Bible says God helps those who help themselves, not Ben Franklin. And so you get to play the role of teaching, having them become aware of ways they can respond and connect to God. I get a chance just in the last two days to see the benefit of this is the joy of the journey. We had a fireworks display at our fundalarium last night or two nights ago, and I sat next to a friend who is not churched. We've been building a relationship with he and his fiance for a while. We talked for an hour before the fireworks went off, just about faith, about God, about life, about fun, about you know the fire people who are juggling fire. Just had a great time. At the end of our conversation, at the end of the fireworks display, he turned to me and said, "Now, when is that exploring service? I get to be part of a step." Just last night, I went to a, gra- a graduation uh, party, and there was lots of typical conversations about sports teams and about the weather and about whatever. It's one Marine I talked to. I said, well, tell me about your story. He talked about getting into the Marines and his story, and 
He said, yeah, I was an atheist and I'd read Plato and Voltaire. I said, oh, I've read those as well. He said, but then I had a deciding moment. I said, well, tell me about that. And he launches in the most incredible story of how he came to Christ. And all his friends are there hearing his story. It wasn't even our party. And they're all intrigued. We're not talking about the weather or sports. We're talking about real life change in this Marine. Talking about how he went from here to here, almost hostile to interest. And it came down to one thing. A relationship, he said. I met someone who modeled something that I wanted. Oh, we're going to see that in the passage. Three slogans we're going to look at today. The first one. Do we hear chaos or the cry? You see, we have a culture that's broken. It's becoming even more broken. It's not nearly as bad as it was in the Greek-Roman time, but it's pretty broken. And then we have a tendency as Christians to get in our bubble and say, Oh, look at the chaos over there. Stay away from the chaos. Oh, it's so immoral. Oh, it's so different from us. Do we see the chaos or do we see the cry that goes on underneath the chaos? Look what happens. Then they, Jesus and the disciples, he's taken the disciples across the sea. They came to the other side where the pagans lived. To the country of the Gerardines. And notice they came to the other side, but only he comes out of the boat. And immediately when he got out of the boat, there met him, not them, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. The disciples stay in the boat. They were told their whole life, stay away from those people who, who, who bow down to Zeus and Dionysus and, and Athena. Stay away from those people in that place. So Jesus brings them over to show his compassion toward reaching the unconvinced. And they're like, we're close enough. Thank you very much. But Jesus steps out because he doesn't just see the chaos of this culture. Was a different view of morality and marriage, a different view of when life begins, a different view of, of how all of life works and what's most important. He sees the cry under the chaos of a people, specifically a man, who desperately wants help. A little background to this passage. They were in Capernaum when they got on the boat. They're sailing across the sea to this area called the Decapolis. And as they arrive, the amazing thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it's so small in comparison to what we think of as a sea. At the top of one of these mountains I got a chance to visit, you can actually see one side of the sea to the other. So certainly from the middle of the sea, maybe even from both sides, you could see from Capernaum that area. Your parents would point out, your religious point out, over there is the bad place. Stay away from that place. And Jesus brings his disciples to that place. And they meet a man who is everything Jewish. He's unclean. He's got an unclean spirit meaning he has demon living in him. That's pretty unclean. He's living in the tomb, which makes you ceremonially unclean. Everything about him, despite, despite the fact he's also worshiping and in a place worshiping other gods, says stay away from him. And yet Jesus encounters him. A man living in the tombs. Now the Greeks were obsessed with death. So they not only had a city, a polis, they had a necropolis, which was a city they built for the, for the dead. Here's an example from Turkey of an Acropolis that we walk through. But imagine here, as you walk off the, uh, the shore, as you step out of the boat, you see just a city for the dead. And a man who had been chained up comes towards you. This man had his dwelling in the tombs. He lived in the tombs. Now look at all the chaos here. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles broken into pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Look at the chaos. Tombs, uncleanness, 
pain, untamable. Appetites are out of control. He's got anger issues. He's got uncontrollable issues. If you were like, if you were looking at this guy like the disciples, you'd say, I'll stay in the boat. But Jesus doesn't just see the chaos. He sees the next verse. He sees the cry behind the chaos. Because in the middle of all this chaos, always, day and night, he, this man, was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, Oh, there must be another way. Oh, that I would be freed. Oh, that I could, could be another way to live. Oh, that I would be forgiven. Oh, that I could be freed from constantly being controlled by something outside of my control. And all day long, he cut himself, wishing he would die with stones. And Jesus, from the other side of the sea, doesn't see the other side, the bad place, the chaotic place. He sees and hears a cry of a man who desperately needs God, desperately needs forgiveness, desperately needs healing, and desperately needs freedom. How about you and I? When you listen into your neighborhood, when you listen into work, do you have a tendency to talk about how this culture is going to hell in a handbasket? Or do you lean in a little bit more and hear the spiritual cries of our culture, longing for real meaning and real purpose? Something that cannot just be fulfilled by more and more stuff and more and more upgrades. Do you lean in and say, I care about my friends who are hurting who have given themselves over to not Zeus or, or Athena, but they've given themselves over to materialism. And, and I care enough that I want them to find that there's, there's meaning in life. There is a way to tame your, your, your anger and tame your lust. Well, Jesus comes face to face with these uh, demonic forces. And notice the two he's in the passage. Very interesting. When he saw Jesus from afar, now which he is this, the man or the unclean spirit? We're not sure. I think it might be the man here. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him. Then he cried out with a loud voice, which he, I'm not sure here, and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Might be the unclean spirit on this heat. I implore you by God, do not torment me. Seems to be the unclean spirit. For he said to him, that's Jesus now, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Again, look at Jesus' distinction. He could see both the man crying out and the unclean spirit who was causing him all this chaos. And he turns to the demon and says, what is your name? Because to recognize a name was to have authority over one. And he, this being the unclean spirit, answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he, seems like the unclean spirit, begged him, Jesus, earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. And here we see the dichotomy of the chaos of a man and a man. Jesus having compassion for the cry of a man who, who desperately wanted to be free, while at the same time the authority of calling out and rebuking this evil spirit. Several things you notice about the passage here, that even the demons recognize Jesus as the Son, the exact representation of the Most High God. That they have to beg him for mercy, that he has authority over them, that they have to say, please, 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 please don't send us to that place. More than that, don't send us out of this country. Because the way Daniel tells us as well, that for whatever reason, Satan has set up different demonic forces that have territorial places within the world. 
And so these particular demons wanted to stay in their territory where people were praying to these foreign gods and to these demonic forces. In fact, the necropolis was a place where people would come out and pray to the dead. Now, Leviticus and Deuteronomy had commanded God's people not to do that because he says, you're not really talking to the dead, you're talking to evil spirits. So apparently there's this, this prayer of demonic forces going on here that were feeding the demons. They didn't want to be sent away from it. But as you look at all these pieces, look again at the distinction that Jesus is able to hear the cry over the chaos. He brings deliverance to him. I think comes to our second slogan, and that's this. When I see people in chaos, do I see customers or do I see combatants? Another way to say it is like this. When I see people who don't believe the way I do or in chaos, do I see friends and potential future family members or do I see foes? I think most of us see foes, those people who believe differently than us. What if we began to see them as potential family members, potential friends? Wouldn't that reframe everything? You see, if you were Jewish, you knew that pigs were unclean. Look at how many times swine are mentioned in this passage. Jesus should not be hanging out in this unclean place. But Jesus saw a potential family member here. Jesus saw a potential friend living on the other side of the sea. You see, a large herd of swine were feeding near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus. Notice they have to get his authority. Send us to the swine. Then Jesus won't be able to harass us because he'll be, he'll be unclean. That we may enter them. They're trying to outsmart Jesus. And at once Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits went out, entered the swine, there were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now notice, there's people watching this whole encounter. Those who fed the swine fled. Wow, what's going on here? They, the unconvinced Greek Romans, told all their friends in the city and in the country about someone who's come into the territory who frees a man who has power over the spirits and the gods that they worshipped. And they, the Greek, Roman, unconvinced people, went out to see what's going on here. Who is this Jesus? What had happened? And they, the unconvinced, came to Jesus because of his encounter with this man. And they saw, they came and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had had the legion. But now he's sitting and clothed in his right mind. They're seeing real life change amongst someone they knew. Isn't that the guy we chained up? Isn't that the guy that could be tamed? What happened to him? He seems to have self-control now. He seems to have joy now. He seems to not be so crazy. He seems kind now. He seems to have a peace he didn't have before. You see, when you begin to build life by life with somebody, and they come face to face with Jesus, and Jesus begins to transform them, and you don't put them in the Christian bubble, you let them continue to live out amongst their friends at college, their friends at the workplace, in a marriage where their husband or their wife is still unconvinced, and they say, what's happened to you? You used to bark at me all the time. Now you're actually talking kindly to me. I might be interested in the benefits of this Jesus thing. And then the people around the unconvinced person begin to see the life change and they become interested. But they also become fearful. This is a power source they have not seen before. They who saw it, meaning the life change, told how it happened to him. That this demon says this man had been, had been freed from the swine. And they then began to plead with Jesus. Okay, depart from this region. We're, we're, we don't want to upset our spirits. So get out of here. But Jesus continues to see even those who told him to go away as potential friends and potential family. 
I get a chance to visit this location when I was in Israel uh, last year. In fact, we were there on Sukkot, which is the Jewish festival when people pray for rain. It was amazing because on the night that people were praying for rain, that's the Sea of Galilee behind me, and you can see a storm began to brew on the very day that people were praying as God is ordained back from Moses to pray for rain, and God was sending rain on the Sea of Galilee while we were there. We headed up this mountain, and the top of this mountain is this Greek-Roman city, massive city, part of the Decapolis, ten cities that could be seen from the river, from the sea, or at least if you were sailing in the sea. This was the place that the Greeks and the Romans hang out, hung out. This is the place they worship these foreign gods. At the top of it is a fountain and this massive pressurized water system the Greeks and Romans had built. The water would have come up through the system. We saw some pieces of it, about this big around the water supply, shooting up 30, 50 feet into the air for all to see. This is where real life begins, where Zeus and Athena and Apollo live. And if you look down from that fountain, you can see this view here on the right. Here in the Sea of Galilee, there is really only one mountain that has a steep enough incline to go directly into the water. And so almost for sure, this is the mountaintop that the swine ran straight down into the sea. And probably in this area here and beyond is where the tombs were that he lived. And Jesus comes to this place at this time to see a demon-possessed man Surrounded by swine and foreign gods, says, I want to make him a family member. I want to make him a friend. That's what he does. What if that was our mindset? See, as we look at the different types of people who are unconvinced, the hostile, the skeptical, the unconvinced, the unaware, we play different roles as followers of Christ. I'll give an example of some of those roles. For many who are hostile, when we meet them, our real goal is to be an ambassador. They've only seen a caricature of a Christian before. They've seen the people with big hair and way too much makeup on religious television. They think all Christians are hypocrites and all Christians are, are, are phobic and all Christians are angry and all Christians are finger waggers. And the best thing we do is we become an ambassador of the real kingdom. We're going to tear down their stereotypes and their caricatures by saying, huh, you're not like what I thought. You seem genuine. You seem honest about your struggles. And your real goal simply is to get them to like you, as weird as that is. That's progress. Because they've never liked a new Christian in their life that was likable. And so you become an ambassador to the real kingdom. Then they move to being skeptical. And then you begin to share your story authentically and you become a salesman in one sense, unless you have a negative connotation towards salesmen, call it a painter. You paint a picture of what it looks like when God works in your life. Not just some prayer 20 years ago. How is God showing up today, this week? What does his comfort look like? What does his wisdom look like? What does his compassion look like? How is he helping you learn to be more patient? You're selling the benefits of the gospel to your skeptical friend. You're painting a picture of what it looks like when God's at work in your life. You acknowledge and respect them that they may not believe it, but you're painting a picture of why they might want to believe it. Because what God's done. They move to a place of being unconvinced. You play the role of the detective. You don't have to be an expert at answers. You're just great at questions. You ask them what they believe, what their hurdles are and their story. And you ask them what their questions are and what their answers are to their questions. As you play the role of the detective, there comes a moment when they are no longer satisfied with their answers to their questions. And they say to you, and what do you think? And then you play the role of the teacher and you begin to inform what you've come to conclude. Why this makes sense to you. 
And you begin to teach. You begin to share. You begin to proclaim. You begin to reason. I get a chance to do this all the time. In fact, I love the adventure that no matter where you go, potentially you might be in a spiritual, life-changing, eternal conversation of helping someone move one step along the way. One of my favorite ones I've shared before, but it's sort of a classic one, is with Steve Kissing. He wrote an a, a article in Cincinnati Magazine about why all Christians are idiots, why the problem of evil was insurmountable, why the Bible wasn't reliable, and why anybody who thought or believed these things were morons. So he got lots of hate mail for his magazine article, and I called him up and asked him to, to lunch. I met him for lunch, and you could just see all his defenses were up. He'd agreed to lunch, but why in the world is a pastor meeting with me? I began the conversation by saying, Steve, hey, my name's Chad. It's nice to meet you. I really enjoyed your article. I thought I brought up some great questions. I thought it was witty. I thought it was really enjoyable and fun. Obviously, I've come to different conclusions, but I'd love to hear your story. It's like his head spun around like poltergeist or something. Like, what in the world? This is not what I expected. I said, well, tell me your story. Now, how did you come to that conclusion? And, and, and did you grow up uh, skeptical? Have you always been this way? And I just got to hear an incredible story of where he'd been. And what are your biggest obstacles? Several of them came out in the article. What are some other ones? What are some emotional ones? What are some intellectual ones? And after we dialogued for about an hour, he goes, I can't believe it. I'm actually enjoying this. <laughs> I said, let me pay for dinner. Really? A religious person is not out to get my money. That's shocking. At the end of two hours... I said, you know, I've so enjoyed this. I don't know if you have as well, but would you be willing to come to our church and, and just share this dialogue? You mean a debate? I said, no, no, I mean just like this. You ask questions and I'll give you my best shot. So he let us come to his house and we videotaped that article, word for word, that he destroyed Christians in. Turned it into a video that we showed at one of our exploring services. So here he is just trashing us. And then he comes up on stage and I said, let's give Steve a warm welcome. And all of Horizon clapped and cheered and welcomed him to our church. And he felt embarrassed that he had thought that these religious people were so angry and they were welcoming him despite his words against us. And you know, over the years, I've continued our friendship. He's been at our church several times and he says, Chad, I'm still an atheist. But if I was ever going to start looking into it, I know where I'd come. He said, your creativity, the warmth, the respect you've shown me means a lot. Now, how many steps does he have to go? I don't know. How long will it take? I don't know. All I know is that I got to be a friend. I saw him not as a foe, but as a potential family member. I got to the issue behind the issue, the cry behind the chaos, to break down the caricatures in those moments. Which I think brings us to our last slogan here, and that's this. Do we act integrated or isolated as followers of Christ? Are we integrated into the culture in such a way that we're being salt and light, or have we separated ourselves from the darkness and we've run away from the meat and it's, it's rotting because there's no salt in it? Well, notice what happens in the passage. When he got into the boat, now notice Jesus, he, not they, he got in the boat with the disciples. You can imagine the disciples the whole time are in the boat. What's going on over there? John, get on my shoulders. I hear pigs. I don't hear pigs anymore. So they're watching the whole thing from the boat. They've missed out on this incredible journey, this incredible freedom, this incredible deliverance, all because they were in the bubble the whole time. They didn't get out of the boat. They thought the goal was maybe to come over close enough to say, hey, if you want to know about God, jump in the boat, join the bubble, you'll love it. Jesus got out of the bubble and out of the boat. His goal was not to get others in the boat, but to get the disciples out. And now he gets back in the boat 
And he who had been demon-possessed begged him, please take me out of this place. Oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe the immorality I live with. You wouldn't believe the things I'm taught. You wouldn't believe the horrible things that I witness every day. Oh, please, 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 Jesus, let me go with you back to the religious bubble place. I want to be with you. Now, who wouldn't? What are you going to say to him? He wants to get away from corruption. He wants to be with Jesus. What kind of a person would refuse that prayer? Jesus does. He begs him and Jesus says, no, that is not the best thing. That's not God's will for your life. What's God's will? Not that you isolate, that you integrate in your culture and tell people the story. Look what he says. However, Jesus did not permit him to run away to the bubble, but said to him, go home. To your friends who don't believe the way I believe, who don't believe the way the Torah teaches. And here's what I want you to do. You don't need to be an expert theologian. He hasn't got much discipleship yet, has he? Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to go tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. See, that's some people think they need to be an expert to dialogue with folks who are unconvinced. Here's all you need to do. Tell people. The great things God has done and is doing for you. What are you going to get people coming back? He didn't really do that. It's your story, right? Just learn to tell and share your story. And Jesus goes on and says, tell your friends how God has had compassion on you. How he listened to your prayers. How he helped you tame your anger. How he gave you freedom. Just tell people the good things God has done. And tell them how he's had compassion. And he, the demon-possessed man, departed and began to proclaim, to preach, to, to, to reason, to dialogue with his unconvinced friends in Decapolis. In Decapolis? Yes. All that Jesus had done for him. And all his unconvinced friends marveled. Well, it's one thing to have the Jewish guy come over here with his Jewish look and his Jewish robe and say Jewish things. But this guy? We know this guy. What happened to you? Really? Do you have peace now? What? One of the worst things we do is people who come to Christ, and then we immediately yank them away from their friends, and we teach them how to be bubble people. Instead of teaching them how to proclaim and share their story. And God is calling us to do just that. And here's what's amazing. Jesus will return to this area in two weeks. And I don't want to give too much of it away. I'm just going to give a little piece of it away, because it's so cool. He returns to chapters later, to the Decapolis. And again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, we're in Mark 7 now, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis, Jesus back in Decapolis, to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him Jesus, one who was deaf and had impediment of speech, and they begged him to be put, put his hand on him. And they were astonished beyond measure that Jesus healed him, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And in those days, a multitude, being very great, with nothing to eat, came to Jesus. Jesus is about to feed the 4,000 or 5,000. I can't remember which one. Where's this multitude come from in the Decapolis? Who's the they that are astonished? Who's the they that are begging? Who's the they that brought them? It's the demon-possessed man's church. He, this undiscipled, 
biblically illiterate man who just shares his story has become the pastor in the Decapolis. He's got a huge following. He tells people about Jesus and what Jesus did to him. And they're like, wow, we hear he's coming back. And they brought their friends who were sick or hurting or unconvinced and said, Jesus is in town. You've got to meet this guy because I met a guy who met this guy. And now this church has been formed. This new community has been formed in the Decapolis because Jesus went across the sea. As we'll see in a few weeks. The disciples get out of the boat in chapter 7. They feed the unconvinced and care for them and love them in chapter 7. And there's something else you're going to find that I can't give away because of time until a few weeks from now. The goal is to get us out of the boat, not to get other people in. Let me tell you what happens all too often. All too often what happens with the church is you move from being missional to being churchy to being off mission. And then it's just a bunch of Christians talking about whether or not their needs are being met. We're here to reach people who are yet no Christ. We're in an All About Horizon luncheon recently, and one of the ladies at our meeting said, I'm a wannabe believer. I'm here. I don't believe yet, but I want to. I just haven't yet found what I need to get to that step. See, in, in Maryland... Ocean City, Maryland, there's a life-saving station. And, and in the 1800s, people would go out there and, and help people that were, were, were crashing and burning and hurting. And they would swim out and they, they would pull people in and, and help rescue them from their situation. And for decades, they did this. And eventually, folks said, you know what? We need a building to house all these folks. They built a real nice building, an 1874 stereotype, and they be, uh, prototype. And they, they still went out on these life-saving missions to rescue people and bring them back in. Then they said, you know what? All these wet people in this nice place is beginning to stink up the place. How about we, the, the, the lifesavers, don't actually lifesave anymore? We'll outsource that to some other people to do it. And, and we'll keep those smelly, wet people out of the place. And, and the surfmen, who were the heroes of the culture, who used to be the ones that began to go out and do these lifesaving missions, began to become uh, just like managers of the other people who came to visit. Well, they decided to move the lifesaving station because... It was such a historic monument. We need to get it away from the ocean where it might get damaged. So they got and they moved it and they moved it to the middle of the city, a long way away from any life saving or any rocks or any ships. And today, the station house has officially become a museum. On Christmas Day of 1978, it became Ocean City Showplace, where people come and hear about how people used to rescue people. The great things that used to be done. This is every church in England just about. This is every church in Europe. This is becoming every church in America. Look, this is a wonderful, beautiful architecture where God used to do amazing things. Isn't it pretty? We need to be a place that's not a showroom for what God used to do, but a life-saving station of training all of us to be surfmen who go out into our culture. Tell the great things God's doing and cooperate with what God's doing with our friends, the unconvinced. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for the great mission you've given us. Thank you for the great challenge you've given us. And thank you that you are working all around us, in our friends, in our relatives, in our colleagues. And some of them are wandering in the tombs in chaos. And give us sensitivity to your spirit to hear their cries. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 We'll see you all next week.